0: Welcome to Are You Native? I'm your host, Melanie. On this episode, I want you to join me as we interview Dr. Camilla Townsend. Dr. Townsend is a distinguished professor of history here at Rutgers University. She specializes in early Native American and Latin American history. She's currently published a fantastic book by the name of Fitz's Son, where she translated Aztec literature and is telling history of the Aztecs told by the Aztecs. What, what does that mean? She's translated uh, the work of Aztecs literally, and that's fantastic. Uh, in addition to all the great work she does, she's also working on sharing the stories of the Lenape with a colleague of hers. And so without further ado, let's just jump right into the podcast and ask her our first question. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Townsend. My first question for you is, What inspired you to become a professor of Native American history? So why am I a professor of Native American
1: history? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, The answer is that it came on me gradually. I think that's true about a lot of things in life. Deep loves come upon us gradually. I mean, when I was a kid, I was fascinated by all things Native American, but I think that's actually true of most American kids of all persuasions. Um, So I wouldn't say that that uh, really determine what I would become. Uh, when I was in grad school, I um, when I got out of college, I went down to Central America. At that time, um, our government, the State Department of the U.S. government, was involved with uh, bringing to power uh, military dictatorships. It was a very sad time in our history. And I taught school for the Sandinistas. The Sandinistas were... Uh, left-leaning a political party that had been an underground party under the samosas a, a dictatorship that we established, and um, they there had been a revolution, and they had helped to lead it. Uh, so the Sandinistas were in charge of the, of the government at that time, and um, they were running all sorts of meetings, helping people write their own constitution, and they were sending the grown-ups back to school. So, seven years after the revolution, I taught adult seventh graders, that is, people who had gone back to school in the very first year of the triumph. And they wowed me. Um, they really impressed me. And I, I came back to the United States determined to study uh, what made some countries poor and some countries rich, because it obviously had nothing to do with how hard people were working, how much hope they had. I was in grad school, I ended up studying comparative economic history, and more and more I became convinced that the patterns in the Americas that got established, that were different in North America and South America, had more to do with Native Americans and which Native Americans were present than any other factors. Um, in, in Mexico and in Peru, there were sedentary Indians, that means Indians who had... Uh, civilizations in which they stayed put, they lived in year-round villages, they had schools and temples and uh, water, running water, literally, um, whereas in North America, uh, most of the Native Americans were semi-sedentary or nomadic, that means they were at least partly hunter-gatherers. Um, so it made a big difference. When the English in North America uh, were colonizing, they were um, fighting against and talking to, getting to know nomadic peoples, whereas the Spaniards colonized an area full of sedentary peoples who paid taxes to them, uh, who gave them the Spaniards wealth and and power from the very first days. Uh, So it made a big difference in the long-term trajectories. We could talk more about that, but maybe that's not what we're here for. What you want to know, then, is why did I become more and more interested in pursuing studies of Native Americans, and it was that project that did it. While I was working on that project, I realized that one of the things the Spaniards did right actually was teach a a lot of people um, the Roman alphabet. And so many of the Mesoamerican peoples took that alphabet and used it to transcribe their own languages. I think because the Mayas and the ancient Aztecs had had writing of their own, so they recognized immediately how powerful, how empowering a tool writing can be. Uh, I think they saw that faster than certain other Native American groups did. So they took this writing, and they used it to write down things in their own languages. So, for example, suppose I wanted to take the word Nisiwa, I am a woman. I could uh, use the Roman alphabet to write that down. I could say Ni, N-I, or N-E-E, depending on how I wanted to do it, Siwa, C-I, like that. So they started spelling out all sorts of old prayers and histories and all sorts of texts. So when I realized that, I thought, wow, if I could learn this language, I could actually read all this stuff that they wrote in the 1500s, all these old prayers and histories. So about 20 years ago, I started to study that language, and so more and more my projects have been centered around indigenous issues. These days, I'm very interested in the Lenape as well, because of where Rutgers is, because of where I live. Um, And as part of the Scarlet and Black project, part of the project um, about the Colonial Colleges, of which Rutgers is one, um, I was assigned to lead a group of students, Rutgers students, in researching uh, the Lenape presence in New Jersey around the time that Rutgers was founded. And we ended up writing a piece about how Rutgers gained strength in the very period were driven west and many of them have ended up in Oklahoma. They're called the Delaware today, but they are the Lenape.
0: I'm curious, Rutgers is the only school out of the Big Ten without any significant Native American and indigenous commitment. We don't have a department, program, major or minor. What brought you to Rutgers?
1: I came to Rutgers um, in multiple ways actually was a student here. I was a grad student here. This is where I got my PhD. Uh, Rutgers had a, a, a tradition of being kind of edgy, being on the forefront, being more radical than other universities, and that's what I was looking for. Um, then, I, uh, after I got my degree, I went away, got a job. I was teaching in upstate New York, um, but they, after I wrote a book about uh, Pocahontas' people, Um, I was asked to come for an interview here, and they ended up hiring me, and I was delighted because I felt like I was coming home. I wasn't born in Jersey, I was born in New York, but I think of myself as a local girl. Now, it's true that one thing I gave up in the published Native American Studies program, I was up at Colgate, which is on Iroquois land, and has had a long tradition of studying um, Native American history, literature, religion, etc. And I knew when I came to Rutgers um, that that is not the case here. We don't have a long tradition of this, but I thought that little by little, by hiring more and more people who uh, study Native American issues and eventually people who are Native American, um, that, that that could change, and I think it is beginning to change.
0: I agree, changes being made, but out of all three Rutgers campuses, a total of 65,000 students, including both undergrad and grad, only 60 students identify as a Native. What are ways you think Rutgers can start attracting prospective Native American students?
1: It's not as easy to change as students might think. Uh, For example, there have been efforts in the past to bring Native American students here to Rutgers and to other East Coast colleges, uh, but it hasn't worked very well actually. Most uh, tribes right now uh, in the United States would say that they would rather have their children study more locally. Not everyone in all tribes, and not all tribes, but in general, uh, Native peoples have found that their kids do better if they're still uh, close to home and can see their family and see their, uh, their tribal lands. So it may not be the best idea to insist on Native American kids from the West coming here. But they should have the option and certainly Lenape, Delaware people in Oklahoma should have the option. I hope someday there might be scholarships available to them um, because for your typical Oklahoma kid, uh, even Rutgers tuition is prohibitive.
0: Right on. I've been wanting to ask this question. So today, Native Americans are being disproportionately impacted by poverty, incarceration, youth suicide and most recently murdered and missing indigenous women. What are ways that you think the Rutgers community and non-Rutgers community can begin to spread awareness or engage in a a dialogue, you know, in in the case of Rutgers, ultimately to bring on an indigenous studies department here?
1: One thing that might help is actually beginning to happen already. and That is if faculty who are interested and students who are interested got together to hold events, The example of this very podcast that you're doing now, I think, is symbolic of the kind of things that could begin to happen. There have already been uh, courses offered. Um, We could offer more courses. The problem with that is that's driven by enrollments. And I cannot honestly say um, that we have been beating students away, so to speak. Uh, That is... There's been plenty of interest, uh, but I would not say it's been overwhelming, and that's actually very typical. Right now, we're in an era when most students say they want to study things that they consider practical, um, and I understand that. I would also say, though, that when students study what they are passionately interested in, they will end up doing well and learning a lot, and that will, in the long run, be practical. But not everybody understands that, so maybe we have to be patient. But I think we should still keep offering these courses, Uh, folks like you should keep organizing uh, and making podcasts, Uh, professors like Professor Sweet should keep organizing wonderful events, and I suspect little by little the interest may grow.
0: It seems like you became the practical and pursued a career you genuinely were passionate about. Is there any personal connection to your, your career?
1: connection, but it's not the personal connection that people are probably looking for. Uh, When I was a a girl, I was sent to Minnesota every summer because my mother was Minnesotan, Um, but I do not mean to imply that she was Dakota, uh, not at all. In fact, uh, my mother was the granddaughter of settlers who came in the 1860s after the Dakota Rebellion was put down. Uh, I should say the Dakota Uprising, or Stan, it's not even fair to call it a rebellion after it, uh, that stand was destroyed by the U.S. military, uh, the, the women and children who survived were mostly put in a, what I can only call a concentration camp, and many of the men were put in prison. We still have many of their letters written in Dakota. Um, so anyway, my family, my direct ancestors, came to Minnesota in the aftermath of all that, when kid, no. I'm, I just I knew that my mother's grandparents had been what we call pioneers in Minnesota, and I felt a great love for the land. It's very beautiful. And I knew uh, about Native Americans. I had, the, the, in the sense of knowing that they had existed, I was as fascinated as most school children are and did my school projects, you know, we, don't we all? Um, but you raised the question, when did I find out about the Dakota Rebellion? i think I was in college. I can see the book cover uh, with a book about the Dakota Rebellion in Minnesota, in the very areas where my people settled, and I remember the shock of seeing that cover. What I'm not sure of is whether I was in college or grad school, but I was definitely an adult, um, and I certainly followed, pursued it actively. I wanted to do more. I wanted to understand, um, I wish I could remember exactly how old I was and when and where it happened.
0: For sure. What are some of the takeaways you'd like our listeners to have about Native American history?
1: About was the history of the earlier eras. Most young people understandably want modern history because they feel more directly connected to it. But when you study early Native American history, you study a period of time when Natives were in control, when this was an indigenous people's continent in every way from the beating heart of the continent was the, the Mesoamerican world and uh, all sorts of complex roads from uh, the other tribal territories led down uh, to the what is now called the Aztec world. Um, it's very empowering, I think, to find out the truth about those cultures. They weren't bloodthirsty savages who were sacrificing human beings all the time at all. It's wonderful when you get to hear their poetry or their songs. Um, you find out, for example, that the Aztecs hated war. They fought wars because they had to, but they lamented it. And they, it's empowering when you see the artwork that was produced um, you know, before any European ever set foot on these shores. So I guess I wish more students realized uh, what an exciting story there is to tell if you put yourself in the time period when this native land was still controlled by native people.
0: Putting us in the past, take us back to the first Thanksgiving, when the newly-arrived pogroms and the Wampanoag natives gathered at Plymouth Rock for an autumn harvest
1: celebration. Right, Thanksgiving is coming up. Um, I would say, in some ways, that Thanksgiving is the most beautiful American holiday. And I say that because We all celebrate it in one way or another, different colors, different faiths. What we're celebrating is our families, our gratitude to God, to the universe, to each other. It's something that we all share in common. On that Thursday, just about every person in this country sits down with people they love. And I think it's a beautiful idea that we have that in this multicultural world of ours, that we do have one holiday in common. But there is an element of Thanksgiving that I wish we were all more aware of. The story that gets told about Indians welcoming the pilgrims and, uh, you know, giving them food and sitting down happily um, is more than a distortion. It's something that's very painful to Native Americans, or in some cases laughable, but I think most would say painful. And I wish people understood that better. It is true that the Pilgrims and the Native Americans traded and worked together and even ate together from very early times, taught each other many things. That is true. It's not a lie. But what gets left out, the lie that is told by mission, is that we teach our children that that is what there is to know about the first Thanksgiving. About Thanksgiving, we give the idea, the impression that this was a great thing, that the connections between Europeans and Native Americans were a great and beautiful thing. In fact, it was the beginning of the destruction of Native American cultures. And to argue that this is somehow the start of a beautiful story is really a travesty. So I wish we could um, cut out. We, as a nation, want to be grateful to each other and to God, and then at other times talk about what really happened to the Native Americans, instead of using this beautiful holiday to tell a kind of happy, silly story about Native Americans that really erases their reality.
0: For many, Thanksgiving is their favorite holiday, spending time with family and friends over a feast. It's tradition. A tradition so ingrained, many of us overlook its origins of the holiday. Maybe it's because we've never bothered to question or our education failed us in telling us the truth. Most of us, including myself, have been giving a narrative where pilgrims and natives sat down to a beautiful dinner and lived happily ever after. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. A holiday, often a symbol of peace, marked the destruction of a people. For the Wampanag natives in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the fourth Thursday of November is a day of national mourning where they honor their elders track a little bit out of the podcast but we're gonna jump right back in with Dr. Townsend and ask her one final question all right let's get back into it all right we're reaching the end of our
1: discussion but
0: I'm excited to hear more about the current research and work you've been doing
1: what am i doing right now right now i'm busily working on translating more aztec histories and prayers and songs and stories they had a literature and i want this world to know more about it um, some of those things i have already translated and, and published in fact i have a book fifth Sun, that just came out i'm very happy it's the story of the aztecs the history of the Aztecs, as told by the aztecs uh, of giving the story of the 100 years before the conquest up to about 100 years after the conquest from the point of view of Europeans, which is how it's almost always been told, I use the translated documents that they themselves wrote in the 1500s to tell the story, and it comes out very differently. Their perspectives on events make the events look very different. Um, So that's what I'm excited about now. I'm also excited about my work uh, uh, on Lenape history. I'm working with a Delaware co-author right now uh, to publish some old Lenape stories, and Rutgers University Press is going to publish that. And then we will try to uh, get grants to distribute that book widely in Oklahoma, where most of the Lenape or Delaware people actually live.
0: Dr. Townsend, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And your your work inspires me on, on a daily, and so I just want to really thank you for everything that you do and we really appreciate you being on our podcast thank you well thank you we do
1: it all for the students so it's all about you
0: (laughs) this was are you native this episode was produced and edited by Melanie Ariave Special thanks to the Rutgers Institute for Women's Leadership. We have music in this episode from Yomodi, AGST, and Beba. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Melanie Ariave. Join us again. And in the meantime, subscribe to our podcast on Apple and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at ru.native. And if you want to see any specific episodes, feel free to email us at ruckersnatives at gmail.com. Thank you, and peace out. On our next episode, we have Janine Jazzy, a native to the Navajo Reservation. She is a Sustainable Development Program Coordinator for the Economic and Social Council General Consultative Status, United Nations, well known as ECOSOC. Here's a sneak peek to one of our upcoming episodes. I, th- I think just the nature of, of being indigenous and, and living within these colonial institutions um, it always becomes part of how you look at and overcome the challenges that you see surrounding us. Um, so to this day, like my, my upbringing and everything that my family had to go through, everything that I've witnessed and seen and, and experienced growing up on a reservation has always uh, been the lens that informs my work.